0: Good morning once again, and thank you for watching this week's video. I hope you and your family are doing well during this time of uncertainty. I think for me personally, this was a week where it really started to hit me of how long we've been doing this for and how unnatural it all feels. And so certainly continuing to pray for our church every day and um, praying for this to end soon and for us to be able to be back together soon, which I know is what we all want and desire text this morning is from the Gospel of John. I invite you to turn there to chapter 5, where we'll be beginning today. And chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we continue to pray for our church as we face this illness. We continue to pray for the health of our people and of our community. Lord, it's been a long few weeks. We pray that this time would end soon and that you would give us the patience to endure. I pray for those who today might feel especially lonely or hopeless in this time of unknowns. We continue to pray for peace that surpasses understanding. And that we can rest in knowing you and knowing your goodness in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. I made a mistake a moment ago. It has actually gone through verse 14, not 15. Again, we're resuming in the Gospel of John. We took a break last weekend for Easter, beginning a new chapter. And as chapter 5 opens up, there's a lot going on. You have issues of faith, you have questions concerning the theology of the Sabbath, you have a miracle that Jesus does, you have conflicts between the man who has been healed. And the Pharisees, conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. There's a lot here. So we're going to get straight to our passage of this morning, and we're going to be looking at our passage in two scenes. First scene is a miracle. The passage begins in uh, verse 1. It says, After this, showing that passage of time between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. The text tells us that Jesus travels to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts. In other words, it was one of the Jewish holy days. We don't know exactly which one. John talks a lot about feasts in his gospel. He mentions three Passovers, mentions the Feast of Booths, among others. And the fact that he does not specify in this instance might be that the specific theology of the feast at this time is not essential to the story. Verse two begins to tell us about a specific place to which Jesus travels in Jerusalem. It says, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Verse three gives us the likely reason for why Jesus is there. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So there are people who have various physical ailments and who regularly go to this pool. From the context of the passage, it seems as though they did this because they believed that this pool where they were going was a a place of physical healing. The problem is that it is God alone who brings healing. I want to pause for just a moment now. If you're reading along with me in your Bible, you might notice that after verse 3, it goes directly to verse 5, that there is no verse 4. At least if you read the ESV, the NIV, there's none of verse 4 in there. If you're reading the NASB, it's probably in brackets. We might not think a whole lot about how our Bible got to us. But in the early centuries of the church, obviously, they didn't have computers, they didn't have computers. The text saved on files, they didn't have printing presses, they didn't have the internet. For the vast majority of history that we've had Bibles, for most of biblical history, the only way someone had a physical copy of the Bible was because someone else wrote it down. And we should praise the Lord for that, that there were centuries of scribes who dedicated their lives to faithfully copying the scriptures. By hand. And given the expense and the how labor-intensive the work was, the work that went into copying the Bible, people saved them. And so we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts of the Bible, ancient manuscripts. And what some biblical scholars started doing in the 19th century was compiling the manuscripts, and they would compare them to each other. If you have a thousand manuscripts, and there's one word in one copy that's nowhere else, you can be pretty confident that one of the scribes made a mistake. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. A lot of us are home right now. Some of us are either retired or aren't going to work right now, at least not physically because of everything going on with this virus, so here's a little experiment. Take out the Gospel of John, start in chapter one, verse one in the beginning, copy the entire book down, and see how you did. I know nobody's probably going to actually do that, but it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, word for word, to cover, copy a long piece of text by hand. And so you have this system of checks and balances where you're comparing the weight of manuscript evidence against itself. And I say these things, this should not make us less confident in the Bible that we have. It should make us more confident that we have something that is as close to the original as we can get. Because the Bible that we read is not just based off of one handwritten copy. It's based on all the copies that we know to exist, thousands of them. And one thing that scholars found when they compared all of these manuscripts is the incredible consistency and accuracy among the scribes. If there's a mistake, it's almost always minor. Maybe switching two words. Maybe in one manuscript, they accidentally said Christ Jesus when they should have said Jesus Christ. Theologically, that's not a huge difference. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't care about getting it right. I'm sure they did. Or in Greek, they use the word the. There are various forms of the word the a lot. Like sometimes before and after a noun, it'll say the. And so sometimes an extra the might get omitted or an extra one might get added in there. Again, technically it's a mistake, but it doesn't really change the meaning of anything that's been said. What we don't see are discrepancies of significant theological issues between manuscripts. And for most translations, the ESV, the NIV, NLT, NASB, CSB, TNIV, the Message, they use Greek texts that come from this process of comparing texts. The King James and the New King James hold to a different philosophy, which... I can appreciate, but my personal view, and again, the view of most of the popular English translations of the Bible read today, is that when comparing text for discrepancies, and when also considering the oldest available manuscripts, I believe that that is a better way to evaluate the texts. I've already said this, and I think it's worth repeating. The differences in passages are overwhelmingly minor. And they are not things that are telling us central theological doctrines or bring central theological matters into question. And so with all of that consideration, I return us to the space between verses 3 and verse 5. And the reason why most Bible translations do not have a verse 4 is because it is universally absent from the earliest known manuscripts. And part of the reason why I like to comment on these matters is because I know that we are a church that is committed to the Word of God. And I believe that we can thoughtfully understand and appreciate the process through which our Bibles have been preserved. So that being said, I think it's helpful to look at verse 3 and then continue into verse 5. Verse 3 says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So lots of people who suffered from various disabilities would go to this pool. And in verse 5, we're introduced to a man who had been an invalid, as the text tells us, for 38 years. Now think about that for just a moment. 38 years in a time before modern medicine. We don't know all of the ailments that he might have had, but among them, as we will learn in this passage, he was unable to walk. 38 years of suffering. The average life expectancy in this period was only about 35, mind you. Verse 6, he encounters Jesus. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus sees the man lying in the pool. There are others there. This man does not seek Jesus out. Jesus seeks him out. Why? We're never told. It's the divine initiative. It's providence. The text says that Jesus knew he had been there for a long time. Reminding us of the supernatural knowledge that Jesus has as God. And then he asks the man, Do you want to be healed? And it's interesting to consider the first two signs, and this isn't specifically called a sign, but we've studied two signs that Jesus has performed to this point in this gospel. When he turns water into wine, his mother comes to him in need. In the last passage, it was a Roman official who came to Jesus and asked him to intervene for his son who was dying. But in this event, the man does not come to Jesus. It is Jesus who goes to him. That's one of several reasons why this event is significant in this gospel and is making a theological point. God heals whom he will. And it is not always because of the great faith that a person has. Every day there are people God heals. God blesses in a multitude of different ways. that They didn't ask for it. They aren't looking to God. They aren't honoring God. It's simply because of God's own goodness and grace and providence. Verse 7, the man responds. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. This guy thinks that being at this pool is his hope for healing. He's superstitious. It's not the pool that heals. It's not being the first one in the pool that brings healing. It's ironic that he looks to the water as if it's some mystical force of healing. When he's in the presence of the Lord Jesus. They're in Jerusalem, the holy city. They're near the temple, the sacred site which represents the presence of God on earth. And he's focused on being the first one into the pool. Certainly the point isn't to fault the man that he has a desire to be healed. Anyone would have that. But he's looking in the wrong place. The point I made a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, but our society and our world are drawn to people who claim to be faith healers. We're drawn to superstition. In the early days of the coronavirus epidemic, disgraced televangelist Jim Baker was selling a silver substance which he claimed could cure a person of the virus. Peter Popoff, who was another disgraced televangelist in the 1980s, On his website, you can find he sells what he calls miracle spring water. I'm sorry, he I think he does technically give it away. But he claims that it's miraculous water. There are people who pray to statues or believe that praying in a specific place will carry higher favor with God. These are not Christian values. Christianity is not a faith of superstition, it's a faith that's rooted in the almighty God of creation. That God knows all, he is sovereign. And then praying in special ways or special places or with special objects is not the basis by which God suddenly hears us. That's idolatry. But Jesus shows him grace. He shows him grace anyway. Verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. As we've seen other times in this gospel, John is very matter-of-fact in his reporting of Jesus' miracles. Jesus tells him to pick up his bed. I'm sure that the term bed is very generous here. It's not like he has a, a sleep number mattress that he's lugging around with him. It was likely a very thin and dingy mat that he was using. So that's our first scene, the miracle which Jesus has performed for this man. It's another display of his power, that Jesus is God on earth. But it's also important to this gospel because of what happens in the aftermath of this miracle, which we'll be looking at for the rest of our time today and into next week. Second scene, we see a conflict that arises from the first scene. Continuing the second part of verse 9, says, Now that day was the Sabbath. That leads us into conflict. The religious figures will disapprove of the timing of this miracle. As soon as this man is healed, he picks up his bed. Religious figures, the Pharisees, are ready to swoop in and bring judgment upon him for violating the Sabbath. Verse 10 says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. I think it helps to have a little bit of background on the history of the Sabbath. As most of us know, honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy is part of the Ten Commandments, specifically it's the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. When the command is given in Exodus, the basic for, basis for the command goes back to creation. Exodus 20, 11 says, "'For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath is important. Throughout much of Israel's history, they had not taken the Sabbath seriously. In the prophets, their failure to keep the Sabbath is pointing to as a symptom of their sin and their lack of devotion to God. For instance, in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 10-26, through 26, Israel's profaning of the Sabbath is looked at as a direct cause of their downfall. In Amos chapter 8, verse 5, the Israelites are judged for their half hearted Sabbath observance and their regular desire to have the Sabbath conclude so that they can get back to pursuing their own ends and their own goals and their own wants and desires. We see a similar idea at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. The Israelites are half hearted in their pursuit of God, and their Sabbath observance is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Half-heartedly going through the motions is looked upon as being vain. God wants true and genuine worship. As we've talked about on numerous occasions, in the Old Testament, Israel is eventually judged And they lose their land. When the southern kingdom was able to return to their land, they attempted to learn from their past mistakes in the final centuries before Christ. But here's something you might not have known or maybe not thought about before. It's interesting in the Gospels, you continually see Jesus butting heads with the Pharisees. Or I should say, you continually see the Pharisees butting heads with Jesus. But where are they in the Old Testament? They're not there. Or think about rabbis. Where does the Old Testament ever talk about rabbis, somebody going to a rabbi, someone becoming a rabbi? It never does. And the reason is because it was after the Israelites had lost their land and returned from exile that these various institutions, rabbinical schools and the Pharisees, They arose as a result of Israel coming back into the land. And part of their goal was returning to the law. They wanted to learn from history and learn from their past sins as a people. And so one of their cultural responses was a hypersensitivity to the law of the Old Testament. The law was good. Romans 7.12 tells us that the law is holy. 1 Timothy tells us that the law is good when used properly. But in an effort to make sure that they followed the law, they added rules that were not biblical onto the biblical law as a way of trying to ensure adherence. And by the first century, Jewish tradition had listed 39 different activities which were prohibited on the Sabbath. In some schools of thought at the time, adherence to the Sabbath was more important than life and death. And so for this man who's just been healed, for him to move his bed is looked upon as a violation of the Sabbath because that was viewed as technically being work. They're missing sight of what Jesus has done for this man. They're certainly not recognizing who Jesus is. The religious establishment tells the man that it is not lawful for him to pick up his bed and carry it on the Sabbath. But it's not lawful according to whom? It's according to their interpretation of what it meant to follow the Sabbath. It is not specifically in violation of a command in the Old Testament. The Sabbath command in the Old Testament relates to work. This man isn't doing work. He's simply picking up his belonging after being miraculously healed. He's not committing a sin here. The Pharisees are more concerned for their man-made laws in judging this man. They're more concerned for judging him for breaking the Sabbath. In his commentary on John, Richard Phillips argues that an inevitable result of legalistic religion is that it treats people without compassion. For the Pharisees, they're not rejoicing in this miracle. They're not glorifying God for this man who can now walk. All they care about is that he's broken the law in their eyes. Again, the law of the Old Testament is good. But men adding laws onto God's law is not good. And it's worse when we expect people to live based on man-made laws that are based on extra-biblical rules. Don't misunderstand. I'm not undermining things that the Bible does command. For someone who's a professing Christian, expecting, encouraging, and exhorting them to live based on biblical principles and values, is not legalistic. But whether or not carrying a mattress on the Sabbath counted as work... Is an entirely different matter. And trying so hard to defend the Bible, they had taken themselves away from the Bible. And trying so hard to compel obedience to the law, they had lost sight of the heart of the law. In another Sabbath controversy, in which Jesus finds himself in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells the Pharisees in Mark two twenty seven, "The Sabbath was not made for I am sorry, the Sabbath was made for man." not man for the Sabbath. And the point was that God has given us the Sabbath as a blessing in a way to have one day in seven that is totally devoted to him, devoted to the worship of him, devoted to rest, and that is separate, separate and set apart. It's very easy to just make rules. It's easy to give people lists of things to do and not do, It's easy to take something good and add so many rules that you begin to make it almost absurd. I think about some of these laws in different states right now with coronavirus. I think social distancing has made an impact and that it's a good thing. But when you hear stories about people at a church being fined for being inside their own cars in a parking lot, It's really starting to get aside from the heart of why these policies are temporarily in place. Or There was a story of a man in Michigan who tried to buy a car seat, and it wasn't allowed because they're trying to limit non-essential purchases. The absurdity that we can take things to. Again, it's really easy to just add more and more rules of things that people can't do or have to do. You can follow all of the extra rules to the Sabbath and have no more love for God. As we continue to study this chapter in the coming weeks, Jesus will go on to expose the Pharisees, that they claim to be experts in the law, yet they miss the true heart and purpose of the Scriptures concerning what they're truly about, And what they truly point to, namely Jesus. In the prophets, Israel's failure to keep the Sabbath was a source of divine judgment. They responded by going too far the other way and thinking that their justification was in observance and obedience to the law. But to again remind us of a passage I quoted a few moments ago from the book of Isaiah... That God does not desire vain offerings. And that just because you're following the rules outwardly, but if you're inwardly cold and distant from God, that your outward actions are meaningless. And that's the great mistake of legalism. And for the Pharisees, they lost sight of the greater commandments of the Bible, namely loving God and loving people. And when the Lord healed this man, they didn't and couldn't truly appreciate that. So you have the Pharisees and the man who's just been healed. In verse 11, he responds, but he answered them, the man who healed me, this man said to me, take up your bed and walk. He simply refers to Jesus as the man who healed me. Likely, he doesn't know his name. He also deflects attention from himself to Jesus. This could be interpreted as the man is blaming Jesus for a supposed violation of the Sabbath, since it was Jesus who told him to pick up his bed. Either way, the Pharisees are quick to take their attention off of this man. They're blind to the miraculousness of what Jesus has just done. Verses 12 and 13, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Jesus has already disappeared among the people. Verse 14 again moves the story forward. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Originally, my plan was to go to verse 18 with this passage, but we're actually going to conclude here in verse 14. Verse 14 is very interesting. Jesus says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Is it saying that this man's previous handicap was the result of his sin? It's possible, but not necessarily what the text is saying. One thing we'll see in a few weeks when we get to chapter 9 It's the story of Jesus who heals a man who's been born blind. One thing we learn from that passage is that not all of our suffering is directly related to a sin that we committed. Sometimes that can happen. We see that in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. They're judged by God. They're struck dead. And certainly, we are all sinful and commit sins and live in a fallen and sinful world. But in establishing a theology of suffering, it's wrong to think that all human suffering, specifically all of our own individual suffering, is directly a punitive response to a sin that you individually committed. And that had you not committed a certain sin, that you would never suffer. Suffering is a part of life for all people. So then what does Jesus mean? Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Is he saying that if the man commits one more sin, something worse will happen? I don't believe so. Consider for a moment a few other verses in this gospel. John chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God talking about the consequences of not believing in him. Or again, let's look at John 8, verses 23 and 24. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins. Unless you believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world, you will die in your sins. Jesus is talking about people having faith in who he is and the eternal consequences of rejecting him. And so I return to our passage. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What's the worst sin we can commit? Not believing and trusting in Jesus as the Son of God, rejecting the way, the truth, and the life. And when he talks of sinning no more so that nothing worse may happen, he's talking about something far worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. He's talking about spending all of eternity facing the wrath and judgment of God for not believing in the Son of God. This passage tells us about superstitions, people who go to the pool in Jerusalem in the hopes that the water will heal them. Superstitious practices are not our hope. This passage tells us about legalism. The Pharisees adding rules on top of rules. Adding rules to hope that that is our justification. Following rules is not our hope. Our hope is in following Jesus, who calls us to sin no more. Yes, Jesus wants us to live lives of holiness and devotion to him. But more than anything else, we are called to trust God and live by faith in Jesus Christ and live out that faith. That is what Jesus means when he tells the man to sin no more so that nothing worse may happen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I do pray for our personal holiness, Lord, that we can joyfully follow you with our lives and live to your glory, Lord, and rejoice that your ways are good and true and better than our own ways and higher than our own ways, Lord. I pray for our faith and trust in you and the salvation that comes through your Son, Lord, that all of us will know that. Lord, I pray Praise you for the gift of eternal life that you give to us as sinful people in your world. Lord, I pray for us this week as we continue to have to adjust to new ways of life, Lord. And I pray that, again, we are able to be together very soon. In Jesus' name, amen.